Hello, and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann, and this is The Hard Part. This shows a deep dive into strategies, founding stories, and more behind Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Jason Goldlist. Jason is the co-founder of Venue. Venue is the platform powering internal meetings that inspire and engage remote first teams like Shopify and Wellsimple. In this episode, we discuss Jason's early days at Wellsimple, the power of people, and what makes Venue different in a busy video conferencing space. Please enjoy my conversation with Jason Goldlist. Jason, I really wanted to start with your experience kind of before that Wealth Simple. You had a lot of interesting work experience there. You went to NCAD for university. How did those kind of early experiences shape who you are today? Maybe your view on the world and you know what led you ultimately to be kind of a multiple time founder? I was really lucky to spend a bunch of time in really interesting environments uh, before Wellsimple and before Venue that I'm working on today. You know, I started my career as a consultant at McKinsey and Company, uh, which was very fortunate to be surrounded by a lot of, as they call them, really smart, insecure overachievers. And uh, that was an opportunity to work in a lot of different project teams with a lot of different people. And then afterwards, I got to follow some of the friends that I had made there. Uh, to continue working from for them and learning from them um, at other tech companies. I worked at a place for mom in Seattle for a few years. And uh, in between, of course, got to study for my MBA at INSEAD with a lot of people from all over the world that shared a worldview of how do you use business as a force for good and um, make a positive impact in the world. And I think all of those experiences, of course, come to bear in how you view the world and uh, how you want to operate. I think the most important lesson that I take away from that part of my career is the focus on people. And that seems obvious, but throughout my career, I've always heard folks talking about, uh, well, I really love fintech or, um, you know, I'm really a marketer. And I think it's weird to define ourselves by sector or by function. And I have found a lot more success avoiding that, avoiding the brand of the company that you work for, avoiding boxing yourself into a certain track or a certain role, and being really open-minded about the kind of people that you want to work with. And I'd say even most importantly, for, you know, working for someone who you admire and respect and want to emulate and who has compassion for you and wants you to learn and grow is probably the best career move that you can take. With your with that focus on people, how has that really driven you from that initial, you know, doing your MBA, initial work with McKinsey? How did that really make you end up at Wellsimple? You know, what was that? What was it specifically about people that really got you interested? Was it the impact that technology or whatever you were working on could impact people's lives? Like, what is that connection there with people and ultimately what you ended up working on? I think my career has been following great people. And it turns out that the great people who I followed have led me into the technology industry and into organizations and sectors that make a positive impact on people's lives. 
So I didn't set out to work in the internet or become technical or work with data or uh, create an automated financial management service. But by making decisions that were really people focused, I ended up there. You know, very specifically after my MBA, I looked up some of the people that I had worked with at McKinsey that I had appreciated learning from and who had taken care of me and given me an opportunity to grow. And I said, hey, I'd like to work for you. And they said, well, it's been a few years, you know, like you don't know where I am. You don't know what I'm working on. You don't know what my opportunities are. And I was like, you know what? I don't really care. You know, like it's, it's you who I want to work with. And, and that ended up um, for me working at a company called A Place for Mom in Seattle, which is kind of like the Expedia and TripAdvisor for senior housing, retirement homes, memory care facilities, that kind of thing. Um, and at the time, I wasn't necessarily passionate, passionate about senior care. Um, but it was uh, a company full of great folks that were really doing good and using technology and internet to do that. Um, and so I was happy to, to join them and be able to contribute the way that I could. And that gave me all sorts of experience uh, building a marketplace, understanding um, D2C and B2B marketing, um, figuring out how to scale and grow a business that would be translatable to my future experiences. With that, that this super interesting background, how did that really transition over to Wealth Simple? So you're in Seattle, uh, working for this marketplace company, getting this fantastic experience. You're always following people. Did you know someone at Wealth Simple? Was that another people con- person connection there? How did that ultimately uh, lead you to go over there? At my last week of McKinsey was Michael Katchen's first week at McKinsey. And I was assigned to be Mike's onboarding buddy when he first joined, you know, take him out for coffee on McKinsey's budget and time and, you know, tell him what it's going to be like and show him the ropes. And I think after our first coffee, it was like really clear that he should be mentoring me. And this is something more than just an assigned onboarding buddy, but um, a friend and somebody who um, I, I respected and wanted to spend more time with. And we kept in touch over the years. And at the time, uh, when I was uh, transitioning from Seattle back home, was the same time that Mike was transitioning from uh, a company that was that he was building that was ultimately bought by um, another player in an adjacent senior care space called Ancestry.com uh, back to Canada. And uh, he tapped me to see if I could help him think through some of those challenges. And I quickly realized that he was really tapping me to help him think through the challenges of scaling Simple. And and what were some of those early challenges? You know, I think Wealth Simple now is probably one of the most well known brands in Canada. What was it like in those early days? Uh, I'm sure it was quite, you know, a big, hairy, audacious goal to you know make a new uh, wealth management platform in one of like the most do- like dominated industries here in Canada by monopolies. So, what what was that like early days? What was the initial problem? Uh, to solve? Well, it was really fun in the early days. You know, we were building cool things that didn't exist before with great people and with a big sense of purpose. And there was so much to do, whether it was creating, you know, big strategies and thinking about the direction of the future to like really just every single day hustling from 
uh, Lunch and Learn to Lunch and Learn, where we'd be bringing sandwiches and talking about the merits of diversified, low-cost investing uh, to companies all over Toronto. Some weeks, I had six or seven lunches, you know, just because we were running madcap all over the city, uh, trying to win clients one by one. So it was a ton of fun. It was organized chaos. Um, But it was also hard. (laughs) You know, when you think about a fast-growing company, just to stay in the same role, you need to grow at least as fast as the business is growing, right? So if Wellsimple is growing 10% a month, that's more than doubling in a year. If you just want to keep the same position, that's like learning more than the sum of everything you've ever learned in your entire life in the span of a year, right? And if you want to actually take on more responsibility and grow, you have to grow faster than the business. You need to learn more at a higher pace, at a faster velocity uh, in order to expand your impact in that way. So um, it's really, really hard. But I think for the folks that operate at the top of that, that's a lot of fun. The challenge, I think, is what provides a lot of meaning. And that opportunity is very rare. And taking advantage of it, I think, uh, is is such an, such an incredible gift. When you talk about that that growth of the business and then your personal growth has to reflect that or even potentially surpass that if you want to take on more, what are some things that you've learned from that experience to stay ahead of that curve? Is this taking on self-learning? Is it just diving deeper into the business and the problems? What ways have you found to really keep up with that accelerated growth and stay on top of that? I think the best thing um, that you can do is Think about the business in sort of two ways. One is your individual contributions and goals and get smarter and faster at doing those, automating those things, looking for help and leverage, um, you know, solving the root of the problem versus trying to bandaid over it. But it's also about thinking about the direction of the business and what the larger goals of the business are, you know, sometimes thinking about where the puck is going, not where it is today. And I think being able to continue to think in that way and learn in those directions is really what can get you, um, you know, I don't want to say personally ahead because that's not the goal, but the company to continue to go further ahead. So if that means that, hey, uh, the client success team is growing really fast and it looks like they're going to need some sort of um, leader to professionalize that team and grow it, it might be stepping into a role that it wasn't the function that you joined for. Or it wasn't the kind of work you thought you would be doing. And you're just maintaining the um, passion for the mission, vision, values of the company, the curiosity for learning, uh, the desire to help out in the best way you can versus the way that you thought you would be doing, I think is what's really important. And I don't think that means uh, enlisting in the customer success diploma program at the local community college, but it could be reaching out to other folks that have done this before, getting them on the phone, grabbing a coffee with them, understanding, hey, what was what was the hard part about that? What did, what would you wish you did differently? Like if you were me, how would you be thinking about this? And like most importantly, like, do you know anybody? Because <laughs> I think one of the cool things about a fast-growing business is you'll end up contributing in a lot of different places. Some of those places you end up making your career out of. And some of those places you end up giving away your Legos trying to build it up the best you can, find the right people, give it away, and then work on the next sort of zero to one problem. Uh, And I think those are the kinds of um, activities, doing, learning, 
getting outside impact uh, that are very quickly that are really well suited to being successful at a fast growing company. So it, it, it's we're even coming back to people again. So even when you're like looking to solve a problem, you're looking to find people that have been through that problem already. What are some things that you look for in people? So with Mike at Well Simple or anyone else that you've kind of followed in your past, what are things that you're looking for? Is it ambition? Is it, you know, that empathy for others? Like what kind of things have always led you to gravitate towards certain individuals? Ultimately, it has to be somebody that I'm excited to be around. And I think there's a few things that go into that for me. And I encourage everybody to sort of reflect and figure out what that means for them. You'll sort of work on it backwards. You'll have the feeling first, and then you'll try to tease out like, what are those things that get me excited about them uh, versus the other way around? So for me, the kind of folks that I'm really excited to spend time with in a professional setting are people that are really smart, really interesting, and really kind, that care not just about the numbers and the ultimate outcome, but actually focus on like the process and taking care of folks along the way and giving people opportunities to grow and succeed that they know will turn in to the ultimate um, outcomes. So it's kind of funny, I think, um, the kind of people that only focus on the end goal uh, don't get me as excited because I'm not so excited necessarily about um, the financial outcome at the end. But people that say, hey, if we really make decisions that are best for people, whether they're our clients or for each other, um, we'll end up actually optimizing better for the long-term outcome. And I, I think people who recognize that are the ones um, that I admire and I like spending time with. So you're, you're part of Well Simple there from you know the first 1,000 to 100,000 users. Um, what were some key learnings and insights there? And ultimately, you moved on from Well Simple. And, and what kind of was the catalyst behind that? So I think we've talked about the biggest crucial learning, which is the power of people. And, and I think, oh my, do I wish that I recognized that earlier in my career. It's now just looking back that I see the power of it throughout. Um, and, and I've been lucky that the last couple transitions, I've been able to keep that in mind. Uh, but it took me a long time to realize that. I didn't know what I was doing. And I did make some missteps in my career because I didn't uh, uh, prioritize that. So that's, I think, the most important. I think a couple other things um, that I didn't know that I learned in retrospect and I carry with me are, of course, um, where I can perform the best to help an organization succeed. Uh, I didn't know that before. I thought it was a certain box or a certain title or a certain um, uh, function that I had to perform. But now I think more of my role is sort of just a general purpose uh, manager, which is you know what I ended up having my role uh, title be at the end of my my tenure at Wilson, which is general manager. And I think that fit it nicely. And I just managed to get things done in general. And I really liked that. And that was a lot of fun. And I don't, I don't think that's any on anybody's MBA career ladder of aspirational role or title, but um, it really resonated with me to help out in any way the company needs it. Um, and then finally, I think, you know, another crucial learning was just the power of brand. Uh, at the time, Companies weren't prioritizing brand the way that Wellsimple ended up prioritizing brand. And uh, I was skeptical. And there were big bets that were made, very big bets for early for an early stage company that we now see repeated um, quite frequently. And I think uh, the team there was really smart 
and made some really great decisions to do that and really set us up for success. So it's a bet, a crazy bet that I think has paid off. Uh, it's not a bet that I'd suggest everybody make. It has to, of course, make sense with your uh, strategy and the, where you are as a business and what your goals are. But it was super interesting to see uh, how important that became to the business. So power of the people also just kind of almost backpedaling a little bit, but I remember those, those lunches. So you're doing these lunches in Toronto, you're going around. Was that ultimately how you got those initial users for well, simple was going to different companies, pitching the product. How, like, was that kind of your initial hack and, and growth cycle there was going after companies and just pitching in person. It's a crazy proposition when you're well, simple in the early days, which is to ask people who've never heard of you to take their life savings and put it into a startup app uh, forever. <laughs> so I, I think um, rightly or wrongly, um, we thought at the beginning, the best way to build that trust was the way that folks have been doing it for a long time, which was to build real personal relationships. We knew eventually that we would need to scale that in a digital manner. But where the early users came from were friends and family. And we had programs around the 10 or 20 people in the office making sure that their siblings and their parents and their cousins and their in-laws were on Simple. It came from uh, in-person events. So whether it was going to local community events and sending the teams, so they would talk face-to-face -face with people or organizing our own events like the Lunch and Learn series at companies and actually going out there and talking with people one-on-one. -on -one. And then it also came from establishing trust in people's minds through um, public relations in the media. So making sure that we were hanging out together with partners and brands that imbued trust, whether it was a hit on CBC or a piece in the Globe and Mail or a partnership with a, another tech company like Airbnb that would lend us some credibility. We really wanted to hang with respected brands. And of course, those things all multiply because as you build trust with individuals and then build trust with groups of individuals and then uh, build trust through larger outlets, you're able to really create lasting uh, meaning and, and brand that ends up scaling much further. And then ultimately, you know, you have all these career defining moments at Wealthsimple, but you choose to move on. What really sparked that? Was there something else, you know, was the stage of the business getting too large? Were you working on something else on the side? Was something else piquing your curiosity? What ultimately led to that uh, change of step? It's funny because when I joined Wealthsimple, I thought, uh, the success path was pretty linear. Like if the startup is successful, we'll grow together and I'll be able to take on like a larger and larger role. And then suddenly I'll be like a executive of a publicly traded company. And there'll be the sort of, um, that would be the exciting end part. And I think um, what I realized was that my career to that point had always been defined by moving to earlier and earlier stage roles from a large consulting company to sort of a private equity backed tech company to a, a startup venture backed tech company. And at a certain point, Wealthsimple had just grown bigger than the company that I had joined before. And I think what the company needed was just more and more specialized managers. And at the time, I was still excited about being a general builder and creating things and um, being interested by lots of different things 
uh, at once. And so it felt like that was a great time uh, to do the ultimate earlier stage role, which was to become a founder myself. What was that like, you know, potentially emotionally, I, I would sense, you know, everyone loves to be on that, that rocket ship and is going to the moon and you're taking on more and more responsibility. What was that like? You know, you, you, you understood specifically where you wanted to be, but how did you really separate your personal want and desire away from maybe that kind of FOMO or like riding that rocket? Was that a difficult piece? I think self-reflection is one of the most important aspects of your career. People think of getting the next promotion or jumping to another company that's going to give you a better title or increasing your uh, annual compensation package. But ultimately, what I've found is that when I spend the time to reflect on who I am and I know myself better, what my motivations are, what brings me happiness, like everything in life gets easier. And when you're interacting with others or making decisions or setting goals, like personally or for your family or professionally, um, you're able to make them with just much more clarity and much more speed. And knowing yourself is like a moving target. So it's not like you can do it once and then like set it and forget it. Um, you got to kind of sort of keep reflecting and understanding like where you're at now. And so I think at that point in my career, I knew more about myself and what I wanted to do. And it actually while it was difficult to articulate it to the team and it was sad because I love the people there. I felt like I was still making great contributions. I felt like they liked having me around. Um, you know, ultimately it was what was uh, best for me and the team was so great about it. I mean, they threw me a little retirement party. Um, Mike went out of his way to do some really fun stuff to celebrate my tenure and time there. Um, you know, we started, having a basketball game. Uh, we used to bring new recruits to come play basketball with us, even if they never played basketball for just to see their hustle and their grit. Uh, and then, you know, four or five years later, when uh, we were leaving, we rented one of the courts again and brought everyone else to play a game of basketball. And I think the team even let me score a couple baskets. So it was just really fun. And, um, and they're a team that I keep in touch with and uh, happy to have been a part of it and honored to be an alumni of. I love that. So you were doing some reflection, really figuring out like, hey, what's the next thing? I want to be a founder. I want to go even earlier. Uh, you know, with your power of the people, which is like a reoccurring theme throughout your life here. Was that the next step? Were you talking to other people, kind of noodling on something new? Ultimately, how did you move into your next venture? It was a combination of active reflection, you know, thinking about who I wanted to be and what kind of impact I wanted to make and what I was good at and what I was bad at and what people thought I was good at and what people thought I was bad at. Um, and also just being opportunistic, um, you know, looking for great people to work with that I wanted to work with to, again, looking for the kinds of problems that got me excited that I would like to dedicate time and energy and passion towards that were worthwhile to solve. And um, I would be happy solving. And I wish I could say like, there's a spreadsheet and all you have to do is plug in these three things and out spits the kind of startup that you should start. But uh, no, it's a process. And uh, it took a whole bunch of time. Uh, but I'm happy uh, in particular that I was prepared when the opportunity came. And the best thing that I did to prepare was know that I wanted to do this. 
and start the conversations with people that I wanted to work with. Uh, so when the time did come and I did recognize a problem that I was passionate about solving, I had an amazing team of people around um, that I could start building with. And what were those next steps? Like next steps was tech TO. So was there a gap in the market? You were in the startup scene in Toronto. You knew, you know, you knew everyone, you knew the shakers and the movers. What ultimately led you to starting TechTO? Was there a gap there that you felt like needed to be filled? Uh, and it seemed like a definitely a shift away from fintech into more of like a community-based uh, uh, business. What's awesome about TechTO is that it's something I've been doing on my evenings and weekends for almost 10 years now. And it started uh, well before my time at Wellsimple. Um, when I was still at a place for mom and starting to work remotely from Toronto, um, I realized that there was something special happening in the tech scene in Toronto, but it was still early, 2012, 2013. Um, and I think people still thought in our community that in order to get real startup or scale-up experience, you had to go to the Valley. And that's what I had thought, one of the reasons why I ended up on the West Coast of the US. And when I came back, I was sort of shocked to see, wow, there are things happening here that nobody knows about. This feels like a special place in line with us, SF or a Seattle or a New York or a London, it was a big city tech scene. Um, and I wanted to feel connected to it. Uh, and, you know, my manager at one of my managers at McKinsey, uh, Alex Norman, we had worked together in 2009 on this really interesting report uh, for the government of Canada, the Bank of Canada, in fact, that was all about opportunities for Canada's financial sector and how to be more competitive. And as part of that report in 2009, you know, we made certain recommendations that there should be, you know, more VC, there should be uh, more competition, less of the oligopoly that you mentioned with the financial services. But we also talked about how we needed to change um, the culture of what it meant to be a Canadian entrepreneur. We needed to encourage more risk taking. We needed to encourage more crazy ideas. Um, and one of the things that we started focusing on when I'd come back was that no one had really taken the steps in 2013 uh, to shape what it meant to be part of the Canadian tech ecosystem. And so that's where we started. Um, you know, today it's Canada's largest tech community with over 60,000 members, you know, engaging tens of thousands of members uh, every single year. And it's always been a passion of mine that uh, was not meant to be um, something that furthers my professional career it was never meant to be an OKR for well simple. It was always about if you've ever been to one, really celebrating what people are doing in the community, lifting everybody up, and importantly, setting the vision, mission and values of what it means to be part of the tech ecosystem. So you've been doing this for a while now, you saw those kind of early signs when you moved back from Seattle, I guess I'd be interested to get your take on where do you think the tech scene is today? What is it where you expected? Has it surpassed that? And where do you see it going forward? I think, you know, the tech scene in Toronto, definitely very built out, and that's starting to happen in more and more po pockets across Canada. So I'd love to get your view on, have we surpassed that? Where are we at today? And where do you kind of see that future overall going? There's a couple approaches to analyzing a tech ecosystem. And I think you'll see a lot of the think tanks and government institutions and maybe even some of the 
uh, capital providers say, there's this many tech jobs in the region. By that measure, we've done very well. There's this much venture capital flowing into the ecosystem. By that measure, we've done really well. There's been this much uh, capital return to investors. We've also done really well by that measure. But I, I think the most important part is uh, where do really smart, ambitious people want to work? And where where do they get trained? Where do they want to be? Where do they want to make the lasting impact? And I think we've always been a great place for that. And what we've seen in the last decade is that we're realizing it ourselves. You know, as Canadians, we have all sorts of um, insecurities in comparing ourselves to our U.S. neighbors. Ah, oh, we'll never be San Francisco and uh, we'll never have big exits like they do in the States. And I think none of that really matters. I think what we've realized is that this is an amazing place uh, to live. It's an amazing place to work. We have access to incredible people, very smart people, whether they're uh, folks just coming out of some of the best technical and engineering schools in the world to now people who have scaled you know, world-beating businesses that want to either continue their careers here or finally move back here from stents abroad. And it's a funny time because now it might not even matter where you are in the world to work as more and more people in this industry choose to work flexible or remote. And yet I think more and more people around the world are going to choose to work remotely or in person from Canada. It's a wonderful place uh, where the values of what it means to be Canadian really resonate with people around the world. A standard of living that is in the top of any metrics and measurements. Um, and I think we're well positioned to take advantage of our local talent and global talent for years to come. We can screw it up at any time, uh, but we're we're super well positioned. And the energy of people who are in this ecosystem is 10 times what I feel in any other place that I go. People who are motivated to change the world and to do it together versus I'm going to do it to become myself rich. You hear a lot more people who want to do it to make our country rich, our societies rich, our relationships rich, to include more people, to make it um, you know, to make tech and to make society uh, more equal. And I think that's what's super exciting about the Canadian tech scene versus other tech scenes is that there's this desire to win together and to do good by building tech. And I love that about our scene. So with that Canadian tech scene, which, you know, focus on that community aspect and your experience of starting TechTO, and you see more and more tech companies now really looking to even their marketing or their growth teams looking to build a community for that product. What are some key takeaways from this time that you spent build, building TechTO, which is more of a community-based uh, company? And how have you applied that to other things you've built or like just general advice for someone that's looking to build a powerful community? Well, let's start with um, community building, which I think is separate from company building. Um, and the reason I think it, that is this, to build community, you have to be very altruistic, not just kind of altruistic with actually a thinly veiled sales pitch underneath, but you need to be wholly and fully dedicated to helping your members succeed. It is really hard 
it takes a lot of effort and by definition can't help you, <laughs> at least not in directly or even in a simple to understand indirect mode. And you have to do that consistently for a long time without any benefit, whether monetary or ego or marketing or whatever. And I think folks that think of community as a marketing channel for their business are quite doomed to fail because they are at odds with each other. Can it be done? Will there be exceptions? For sure, it can be done and there will be exceptions. But you need to be so long-term altruistic. You have to add so much value for so little return that I would say people who are doing community for anything other than the greedy um, component of feeling amazing when you help others are doing it for the wrong reasons. And that's certainly why I do it. I believe it needs to exist. I love doing, I get energy from helping people transition into the tech community from people who are starting their first company, uh, meet a key hire, a co-founder, an investor, connecting someone to a wonderful partnership. It's these stories that get me so excited. That does not make TechTO a great business. This is not a great business. It's a community organization. You know, it's a social enterprise. It's a nonprofit arm. You don't do it to get rich, but has it paid me back in a million ways, a million ways. Um, and I'm so happy that we have this for the community and I wouldn't want to see it, you know, fall into the wrong hands or be used for evil or become a marketing channel. It needs to stay what it is, which is for entrepreneurs and technologists by entrepreneurs and technologists. So you have this tremendous experience building community at TechTO, being early at Wealthsimple. How did these things really shape you and what ultimately led you to, you know, now you're working on Venue, but what ultimately led you to starting Venue uh, and how did that previous experience ultimately lead you there? Was it an idea that popped into your head? Hey, this is something that needs to be built. Was it you know, friends were asking for it. Like, how did this this idea come to become a full-on business? I've heard of a couple different routes on how to find a problem to work on uh, for a startup idea. You know, one is you do a lot of research. You understand the trends of the market and you ask a bunch of people what they need and you try to empathize with, you know, your target consumer and uh, you try some things and you make some vaporware and you know, you try to really do like an outside and analysis. The other way is you have a problem yourself and you try to solve it for you. Because at least, you know, one person has that problem and one person needs it solved. And the way that I operate, I'm a lot better at feeling the problem myself and fixing it. So like I met, I met, I mentioned, um, I done the reflection. I really wanted um, to build a business with people that I loved working with and take on that challenge ourselves. Uh, we were just building things in different directions, things that appealed to us that we thought were interesting, that we thought would be cool. And suddenly COVID hit March, 2020. And for, you know, seven or eight years in a row, I had run this monthly tech TO event that ended up being an event with thousands of people where I really thought of it as like the all hands for Canada's tech community, right? Where we really tried to create the culture of what it meant to be part of the tech ecosystem. And when COVID hit, we knew they needed that more than ever. 
we wouldn't think of ourselves as an events company. Other events companies shut down, they uh, delayed, they pushed it back. We'll wait and see what happens with COVID. Like we didn't think of ourselves as an event company. We're entrepreneurs and technologists and we were needed more than ever to say, here's how to navigate a difficult time. Here's where the opportunities are going to lie. People were very nervous. So we actually didn't pause. We dove into it headfirst as an entrepreneur would. And we decided to commit to running not just our monthly programming, but we would actually commit to running daily live streams every day for the rest of the year until we figured out this new medium and helped our community through this difficult time. So this was mid-March. We made this decision. I think we started March 19th and we ended up running a live stream for our community every single weekday for the next 160 something weekdays until we took a break. It was really hard. And on the first day, we used Zoom. The second day, we used Teams. Third day, we used Meet. I couldn't believe it because they were such uninspired platforms that didn't have a personality and didn't let me actually create culture with my community. If you've ever been to a TechTO before, you'd know that they became so big. I started riding around on a hoverboard just as an attempt to get everybody in the room access to the microphone so they could make announcements, so they could meet each other, so they could speak. I used to say, I didn't even need my programming team. I could have picked any five people from the audience, put them on stage. You wouldn't know the difference. Such amazing stories here in the audience. And I thought that would be so much easier to do when we went virtual. Instead of having to like literally take an aid to move myself fast around an a audience, I could just like point and click people really quickly and it would be better. And yet there were just no tools for engaging folks at scale in the way that I thought folks ought to be engaged. So at first, we built Venue.Live to solve our own problem, which was to create culture at scale with the Canadian tech ecosystem. And it just grew from there. Uh, folks who are you know, leaders at really amazing remote companies like Shopify came to our events, saw what we were doing and said, hey, this is a tool that we need for the future of work. This is what we need to be running our internal all hands and town halls and AMAs and product launches on. Um, and that's what they do. Companies like Shopify now use Venue every single day to create remote culture and inclusion and get the highest ROI from these large meetings. I love that from a sense of, you know, kind of like dog fooding your own product, which people say to do all the time. But, you know, you look like anyone who would look at that space and see Zoom, me, Teams, they'd say, oh, it's done. Like that space is, there's no further innovation that needs to happen in that space. So it's interesting that you found that kind of gap there with that internal video and building culture, building community, getting people connected there. So is that really, you know, kind of where you're positioning the business now? Ultimately, you know, you were using it for yourselves. But is that where you're starting to see the demand is from these Shopify's for their their all hands and meetings like that? That's right. We think of venue as part of the corporate video stack of the future. So that's alongside solutions like Zoom or Meet or Teams, which I think of as productivity tools, right? Those are meant for like, how do we make a discussion or a small meeting like as easy as possible to get some people and their video and audio in a room to discuss? But Venue is really designed to help creative leaders build culture at scale. So when you run Venue, it's really not a meeting at all. It's really 
like a live show, like a TV talk show, like a live sports ESPN discussion in front of a studio audience. And we make it really easy for anyone at these companies to TVify their meetings, to make high production value shows for their company. So these are the features that really allow anybody to engage a large audience. So no more Zoom fatigue and black boxes and turning off your video and just one way watching, but really level up the production value of the meeting so that people can communicate really effectively in this new medium of like highly distributed remote work and feel included and feel empowered. And of course, like these are the most expensive meetings that these companies run in terms of the amount of dollars spent on compensation per hour when they're running them. How do you get the highest return on that team's time to make them really effective? You mentioned remote work there, which I think is one of the most debated topics on Twitter, in the tech community, whatever that may be. Where do you see venue slotting into that? We're seeing, you know, Shopify has gone fully remote, you know, other companies, RBC, other big organizations saying everyone needs to be back in the office. But do you just see a place for venue regardless if it's a remote workforce or like hybrid or even in person, like you're going to have offices dispersed across the country, across the globe. Is this just an impactful product regardless of remote work? That's right. Even before the pandemic, these companies that think they have an in-office culture were already highly distributed. You know, I think about even Wellsimple, which we would have said, what's remote work? Well, we had offices in Montreal and New York and London. And when we used to run our recurring rituals, first we called it Holy Time, and then we called it All Hands, we would host it in Toronto. And we take the Polycom, though, the little um, conference phone, and we just put it at the front of the room and people could dial in. And that was the remote work experience. If you were in Montreal, London, or New York, you just called in and you listened to some poor quality audio of people having a presentation in Toronto. And I think now that we've all had the experience of a democratized audience where we've all been that person on the polycom now, uh, it will never go back to saying, let's just throw that conference line into that in-person meeting and those guys will just tune in via phone and listen to this. So the next question is, um, what will happen next? Now that so many people have had the experience of working remotely, I think it is absolutely certain that remote work is much more flexible. People can work from anywhere. They can pick up the kids. They can run some errands. People love remote work for its flexibility. And even companies that say, come back to the office, I don't think many companies are saying, come back nine to five, Monday to Friday. Come back a day a week, two days a week, three days a week, whatever the culture is. But the question is, can remote work be not just more flexible, but also more fun? And I think that's the most interesting question because there are places on the internet that people love spending time. So much that when the workday is over, even if they work remotely, they just change what's on their screen and continue sitting there or consuming via their mobile phone, all sorts of fun stuff, whether it's their friends' updates on Instagram or their favorite streamers on Twitch or YouTube. Like That is the place they want to spend their time to be entertained. And I think what's missing is the opportunity for companies to find that combination of remote work and where employees want to spend their time and where they want to be engaged. And so at Venue, our vision is to make remote work more fun, 
so that people actually choose to work remotely and companies offer remote work, not just for the flexibility, because because it's a better employee experience. So we're starting with this team-wide all-hands that we've spoken about, which is a recurring ritual that many companies have to make work better for people, even though today they might not. They might do the opposite. It's a real problem. Zoom fatigue, you know, boring presentations, wasting people's time. But you can expect us at Venue to continue to innovate on how teams build culture remotely and ultimately how working remotely becomes more fun. I love that. And also, like I, re- I read the TechCrunch article about Venue and how you're looking to build that that video vibe and sensation delight users just like Slack did with messaging. So how do you, what do you see as like, I see that as a very powerful thing. You know, when I join an organization, they're not using Slack, instant red flag. It's just such a fun experience. You're on it, you know, majority of your day. Are you looking at that as the same type of thing? Um, You know, Zoom, I I feel like a lot of these other video tools, yes, they have a different function, but I'm kind of using them because I have to. So you're taking a much different approach where, you know, video is the medium, but you're looking to make it as engaging as possible, as fun as possible. Are you looking to kind of replicate that Slack experience, but in a video format? Our clients tell us that if Slack made video conferencing software, this would be it. It's the place where, yes, you get work done. This is an important way we communicate, but it's also the place that you can customize and make your own. So in a way where Slack lets you have custom emojis in your own channels and put in GIF integrations to explain and express your feelings beyond just the normal text, uh, we think we can do the same with video beyond just the normal video. And in fact, these are not things that we've pioneered. There are things that happen on live video experiences in social media every single day. It's the way that these communities have been built. It's the reason that people feel like they're best friends with their favorite streamer. It's the reason those streamers make tens of millions of dollars a year. And we think we can take some of those learnings and bring them into the company, not as a way to just make sure people listen to the CEO, but as a way for people who are working there to connect with each other, to feel part of something bigger and to be part of the community of folks who work towards a shared vision. Also in that TechCrunch article, you were able to, you know, raise some money from some really impressive roster of uh, Super Angel, Stuart, who's the founder of, of Slack, Excel. What really led you to be able to be successful in raising money? A lot of people that are listening to this podcast are, starting something or maybe the seed stage series a what was really important like obviously you're talking earlier about you know shopify was using the product um it was a problem that you had firsthand so it was actively being used with tech to were those important things that investors were looking for a lot of folks talk to me about raising money and they go i need help building my deck You know, they think the deck is the important part to raising money. And if I had just built the right deck, it would unlock millions of dollars of venture capital so I could finally build my business. And I think the big insight uh, that I'd like you to take away from this is that the deck doesn't matter. In fact, I didn't even build a deck when we raised this. What matters and what made our fundraising experience relatively straightforward is not building a deck, but it's building a business. 
And importantly, we spent our time building a business that was ahead of the stage that we were raising at. So we set out to raise seed round of financing. We had bootstrapped for 18 months. And because we had bootstrapped for 18 months and we built a business that paid for people's salaries and for our AWS hosting and uh, for our tooling, we didn't need to raise money. We had traction. We had real growing revenue. We were way ahead of a typical seed-based business, made raising money really easy. So focusing on building a business beats focusing on fundraising every day. And I'm trying to take that lesson with us for um, what we'll do next. I'd like to never raise money again. I think we have plenty of runway and a huge opportunity that we won't need to turn to the venture capital markets again. But boy, would it be great if we were venture optionable. We didn't need to, but we could. And I'd like to be at a place where if we were to raise a next round of financing, a Series A, we'd be further ahead as a business than a typical Series A company. So that means having clearly demonstrable product market fit, fast growth, maybe more than a million dollars of annual revenue. That's what lets us control not just the process of raising money, but also the terms, how we do it, and our own destiny as a business. The recurring theme, I think, throughout this conversation has been people. And now that you're a founder of an organization that, you know, will continue to grow, what has been an important lesson, whether it's from previous work experience or just your background, how how has that made you a better leader of an organization? You know, you started TechTO, you're a GM at Well Simple, so you've had experience managing people, managing teams, but what's it like been being like a founder, building out the business, the story, the brand, and ultimately leading people to join and, you know, stay engaged within the organization. Honestly, it's been a lot of fun. Um, like you, you asked me, uh, what was it like uh, scaling well simple? It was fun and it was hard. Uh, and I think those things are not opposites. In fact, they could go together. And I think the same is true for what we're doing at Venue. This is really fun for me because uh, we're working with incredibly smart and kind and talented folks. We're working on a really important problem that we think you know is ultimately going to impact millions of people. It's already impacted hundreds of thousands, and we'd like it to be millions and then more of people. Uh, and it's something that really resonates with me. I have a passion for this problem, which is helping people have fun at work. I think like this is where we spend a lot of our time. I think not just um, is it better for our own uh, mental health, not only will we enjoy it more, like I think we'll have better business outcomes when we imbue our careers and we, when we imbue our work with humor and fun. So uh, it's, it's fun for me. And it's hard because uh, now that we're a small uh, startup and we're growing quickly, there's lots of decisions to be made. Things that were prioritized previously um, uh, by other leaders, I get to try my hand at prioritizing that myself. And I think I'm just very lucky and grateful to have seen some really smart, incredible people make those decisions previously that I can learn from and try to apply to our own unique situation. And we will get a bunch of them wrong. I think that's like part of the fun part. Uh, but I hope that we get a few of them right. And I don't think we need to get all of them right for us to build a really incredible experience for our clients 
an amazing business for our investors and a really distinctive experience for ourselves. So um, that's what I'm trying to do. Make a few right decisions uh, with great people in the right direction. And I would love to jump into the the quick fire round now just to finish things off. Uh, first question, the quick fire round, what is the best book you have read? And I feel like uh, there's a book brewing here called Power of the People or People Power or something there. But what's the best book that you've read in, in your in your background? There's probably a hundred books about people um, that you could read if you want to get smarter at business, you know, who comes to mind, uh, the hiring method. Um, but like ultimately, it has been now five or more years that I've read any nonfiction. I've just banished business and self-improvement books uh, from my library. It gives me an escape from work. I think it gives me maybe some more creativity and storytelling power for the things we're doing. So uh, I don't know. I read a lot of um, awesome authors like Tom Wolfe and Truman Capote and Hemingway. I don't know. Is it like too cliched to say Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace? Probably. But if you haven't read it yet, then you should read it. <laughs> and these are all books that I need to jump on and authors. I definitely been focused on that business side. So need to get more into the fiction. If you take away what, one what are, thing from that quick fire round question, I think um, uh, you can learn a whole bunch from books that don't just teach you about business, but teach you about life and teach you about like the way people live and the choices that they make, um, whether they're real stories or not. And um, I think it's valuable for anyone who's trying to build in a creative industry to um, immerse themselves in art, of which literature is definitely part of it. I love that. And a recent podcast I've, I've been loving is called Founders. And uh, the the creator there actually will read a bunch of biographies from famous business like Steve Jobs, whoever that may be. He'll read the biography and he condenses it into like an hour long podcast. I'm a bit more of an audio person, but mm-hmm. um, I, I love that. Sure. Um, yeah. Read, what you you must- should read the, the Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe, sort of a biographical story of the first um you know space programs and the test pilots that became the first nasa astronauts um incredible stuff doesn't need to be just modern ceos of um big businesses can be inspiration and decision making and um the trade-offs that people make to achieve greatness can come from anywhere i love that um what are you most excited about this year? Whether that, you know, we talked about venue a little bit, but is there anything either either personal or business? What, what's got you excited? Yeah, business-wise, it's um, just excited to keep building venue and help make remote work more fun for millions and millions of folks around the world. That's super exciting for me. Uh, you know, personal, um, there's, you know, exciting time uh, to be a builder is uh, any time in your life. I have two young children, uh, you know, they're growing up in front of my eyes. We got to spend a lot of time with them during COVID and lockdown. And it's fun to see them now back out in the real world and making all sorts of relationships and continuing to develop. Raising kids is probably a definition of fun and hard. So yeah, that's, um, that's a startup that you can't exit. Uh, and also very difficult to find financing for, um, you know, so uh, you know, and you can't fire the people. Uh, it's a, it's the hardest one. It's, it is definitely a startup with a lot of very serious constraints. Uh, and I think like part of that, like I said, hard is fun. Fun is hard. <laughs>
How do you deal with hard times? You know, we talked a lot about fun and hard. You talked about escaping through reading through fiction. Um, what are some things that you do to really keep yourself balanced? Well, I've got incredible co-founders um, at Venue that make it easier to have tough conversations with. But ultimately, it's my um, my partner in life, my wife, who provides, I think, the most um, incredible support. And probably behind every entrepreneur is uh, a spouse or a family that's supportive on that journey. Um, so, you know, the, the person who helps me the most through my hard times is her. Uh, you know, I think uh, one of the things that she helps me see through is just perspective. And we are, uh, my guess is anybody listening to this podcast, Evan, <laughs> is probably very lucky and very blessed to be able to be taking the time to listen to this. Uh, thank you. We're probably even more lucky and blessed for you to be listening to us. Um, and that, I think, helps me get through harder ones. And then ultimately, I try to remember that the point of hard times for me is to have easier times in the future, uh, to learn from the mistakes, to get through the hard part, to um, talk about where we're going to be and keep a focus on that vision. So um, I try to have more easy times and less hard times. Jason, this conversation has been fantastic. Not hard at all. All fun the whole time. So really appreciate the conversation about the background, what you're working on now with the venue and just your insights. It's been a tremendous conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you, Evan. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Check out the podcast description for my social and website links to stay up to date with all future episodes.